That's like when we go to Israel, people always say, well, you know, what do you dress to this? I said, Israelis are the most casual people. Everybody in this room just about would be overdressed in Israel. They're very, it's, it's very casual, so we just go comfortable. I think, let me see, the only announcement that, two announcements that are important. Number one is that we fall back. On Sunday night, so you can either turn your clock back an hour when, before you go to bed, or wake up at two o'clock in the morning and do it when it actually takes place. But either way, don't forget to set your clock back before you go to sleep Saturday night, and then uh, Sunday morning we will be having uh, we'll be having communion. Jeff is back from Brazil. I hope some of you were able to read along on the blog that we put up on the Dean Bible Ministries website, so that you can. Uh, you can go look at some of that. He'll give a little report at the end of class tonight on how how things went there. How shall a young man cleanse his way? By taking heed thereto according to thy word. Thy word have I hid in my heart that I might not sin against thee. Thy word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. Jesus prayed to the Father, sanctify them in truth. Thy word is truth. For the grass withers and the flower fades but the word of our God shall stand forever. Before we get started, we'll have a few moments of silent prayer so we can each make sure that we are ready to study the word this evening and focus. Scripture teaches that spiritual progress takes place when we're walking by the Spirit. It's maintaining that right relationship with God that we refer to as being in fellowship. That phrase somehow is so overused that people forget what it means. It's not just a static position. It is maintaining an active relationship with God. And that is necessary if we're going to advance spiritually and if we're going to understand his word. So we'll have a few moments of silent prayer, and then I will open in prayer. Let's pray. Father, we're thankful for the opportunity to come before your throne of grace this evening, and we're very thankful that we have the opportunity to study your word this evening, to fellowship around your word, to be reminded of your faithfulness, that you always fulfill your promises. And though it may appear to us that that a lot of time goes by, it may appear to us that you've forgotten us or you're distracted with other events in the world. We know that in your omniscience and omnipotence that you are in complete control and that you are working things out according to your purposes and your plans and that it is our responsibility to relax, to rest in you, and to learn your word, to learn of you, and to walk consistently by the Holy Spirit. Father, keep us mindful of the fact that we're not just here to perform our jobs or to be uh, mothers or fathers or uh, faithful sons and daughters, but we're here to uh, give evidence of your grace. We're here to glorify you, and we're here to grow and mature spiritually that we might give evidence for all eternity before the angels and humanity that you are a true loving and righteous God. And we pray that tonight as we continue our study of the kingdom that you will help us to understand where history is headed and our role in that event. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. All right, we're in second part looking at the millennial kingdom. 
And this is the thousand-year rule and reign of Christ. Looking at this particular slide, we see that we've advanced through the dispensations, gone through the church age, which ends with the rapture. There's a brief interlude between the end of the church age and the beginning of the tribulation, a transition period. We don't know how long that's going to be, but the tribulation actually begins when the Antichrist signs a treaty with Israel. That starts the stopwatch for Israel going again. It will last for seven years through the tribulation. And during this time, the unsaved of all of the previous generations all go to Sheol or Hades. When Christ was raised from the dead, he went and proclaimed victory in Hades. And paradise, which then was part of Sheol, was taken to heaven. And so now the only inhabitants of Hades or Sheol are unbelievers. And those unbelievers are not resurrected until the great white throne judgment, which is what comes at the end of the millennial kingdom. So all of the uh, unbelievers who die in the church age, tribulation period, and the millennium uh, go to the lake of fire. Then we, uh, right now, we're at, the tri- we're at the end of the tribulation the second advent of Christ, the campaign of Armageddon, we've covered all of that. Uh, the judgments that occurred there at the end of the tribulation period, uh, we've covered and then, uh, or will cover, and then we go into the millennium itself, which is of its essence a Jewish kingdom. As I pointed out last time, the word millennium is a word that comes from the Latin word milli, meaning a thousand. And it is based on the fact that the Greek word for a thousand is used five times in Revelation 21 through 6. In the early church, they were called kiliasts from the uh, Greek word uh, kilios or kilioi for a thousand. And we went through Revelation 22 through 5. Each time the uh, term thousand years is mentioned, the devil and Satan, the devil is bound uh, for a thousand years, the devil that is Satan is bound for a thousand years. He won't deceive the nations for a thousand years. Uh, the church age uh, believers will live and reign with Christ for a thousand years. That's us. We will be re- ruling and reigning with Christ uh, for a thousand years. Uh, in verse 5, we're told that the rest of the dead did not live again until the thousand years were finished, the fourth reference. And then verse 6, blessed and holy those who take part in the first resurrection. Over such the second death has no power. They shall be priests of God and of Christ and shall reign with him for a thousand years. Another good verse for the priesthood of the believer. But again, it's a thousand years. In terms of vocabulary, we learn that amillennialists do not believe in a literal millennium. We are living in a spiritual kingdom today. Christ is ruling from heaven. So they've spiritualized uh, the uh, promises of the Old Testament so that the land isn't a literal land. A thousand doesn't mean a literal thousand. Uh, Israel doesn't literally mean thousand. A kingdom doesn't mean a literal kingdom on the earth. So they don't have a literal millennium. This age will end with the second coming of Christ. As far as they're concerned, the term church age and kingdom are synonymous concepts. Now, who believes that? Roman Catholics believe that. Most Presbyterians believe that or their post-mill. Lutherans believe that. Outside of uh, uh, 
most Baptists who tend to be premillennial, although some are not, but most Baptists are premillennial. Uh, Bible churches, people influenced by uh, Dallas Theological Seminary, a lot of evangelicals, a large number of charismatic and Pentecostals are not amillennial. They're premillennial. So this involves a lot of people who are in your mainline denominations. That's why they are they're working for the kingdom today. And and one of the things that is a little pet peeve of mine is that you constantly hear this, and and those who go to seminary and those who are taking classes need to be aware of this. You'll hear people talk about, we need to do such and such today for the kingdom. What are we doing for the kingdom? And and this concept of the kingdom is used very loosely uh, by a lot of evangelicals today, and the question is, are we in the kingdom? And even among premillennialists, there are many who believe that we're in some form of the kingdom today, and they refer to that position as the already, not yet view of the kingdom. It's already here, not fully. So it's not yet fully here, but it's partially here. And um, so we we are doing kingdom work. Jesus is never referred to as a king until he returns at the end of the second coming. He's never viewed as the king of kings and lord of lords. We sing certain hymns. I remember there was somebody who was part of this congregation when it first got started in the first two or three months who took exception to the fact that we sang all hail the power of Jesus' name because it talks about uh, crowning Jesus. But the same, if you take it literally in the sense that, that it's being talking about something in the present time, yes, that would be wrong. But you also have the hymn, Crown Him with Many Crowns, stating the same sort of thing. It is poetic license where the the hymn places us in an end-time scenario at the time when Christ comes to establish his kingdom. And and poetry does that, and that's what hymns are. They're they're poetry. So the idea that... uh, uh, and in some of the things in joy to the world, since Christmas is coming up in like a freight train, uh, won't, won't be long before Thanksgiving will be past us and we'll be, uh, busy trying to buy all the grandkids and kids and everybody else presents. Uh, what we see in, in, uh, joy to the world is a couple of lines in there that make it appear that Isaac Watts, the hymn writer, is talking about the kingdom as if it's today. But remember, he's talking in part of the hymn about the birth of the king. And and when Jesus was born, he was born as the king to present himself as the king to Israel. So when when you view those lines within that framework, that's totally legitimate. He was a premillennialist. And then uh, uh, later on, other aspects of that hymn, he does the same thing. He puts us in the place of the coming of the kingdom when it finally comes into existence. So he, he's not amil, he's not confused. This is just typical poetic license. If you're a hyper-literalist, you have more problems than just that. So uh, relax a little. Postmillennialism talks about the church age bringing in the kingdom. Jesus doesn't return until after the kingdom, post, after the kingdom. And so to be fair to them, a lot of pre-mills have misrepresented them. They do not see the church as militantly bringing in the kingdom. That is not their view. 
They believe that God the Holy Spirit will, towards the end of the church age, expand his influence more and more through the preaching and teaching of the word of God, and more and more people will respond until the kingdom comes in. So he sees this as a product of the work of God the Holy Spirit. Ultimately, it's a utopic view. Uh, that's that's all it is, is a utopic view, and I think there are many other problems because they, they, like the amillennialists, do not have a consistent literal interpretation of Scripture. And then we have premillennialism, which is our belief that we believe that Jesus will return to establish the kingdom. He will judge the nations. He will judge the unbelievers who survived the tribulation. He will judge the believers who survived the tribulation. He will judge the Antichrist, the false prophet, and Satan. All of those judgments take place at the end of the uh, tribulation period, and then he will establish his kingdom, and that will last for a thousand years. Now, just a couple of other historical quotes for you. Philip Schaff, who is a well-known late 19th century author who wrote an eight-volume work on the, I believe it was eight, eight or nine volumes, on the history of the Christian church, and he only goes from the beginning up through the Protestant Reformation. He doesn't even finish, I don't believe, the Protestant Reformation. So he goes into quite a bit of detail in the early church, quite a bit of detail in the millennial period, and he writes that the most striking point in the eschatology, that is the view of end times, the most striking point in the eschatology of the anti-Nicene age. Now, there's a good word for you. Anti with an E means before. Post means after. Anti means before. Nicene refers to the Council of Nicaea, which was held in 425. It was the first great ecumenical council of the church when the Emperor Constantine saw the, the Christian community just just falling apart over the issue of the identification of Christ. Was he eternal God or was he somehow generated from God? Was he eternal or was he created or generated at some time in eternity past? And so that was resolved at the Council of Nicaea. But what he, what Schaff points out is in the eschatology of the anti-Nicene period, in the period from, from Christ to 425, so those first 400 years of the church, he says that it, that is dominated by the belief of a visible reign of Christ in glory on earth. Oh, excuse me, I skipped that one phrase that's underlined. Uh, the eschatology of the anti-Nicene age is the prominent chiliasm or millenarianism, that is the belief of a visible reign of Christ and glory on earth with the risen saints for a thousand years before the general resurrection and judgment. It was indeed not the doctrine of the church embodied in any creed or form of devotion, but a widely current opinion of distinguished teachers such as Barnabas, that's the epistle to Barnabas, not the biblical Barnabas and probably another Barnabas, or that was a pseudonym. That was written probably around 70 or 80 A.D. Uh, Papias, who's at turn of the century into the early 100s, Papias was a disciple of John uh, the Apostle. Uh, Justin 
Martyr, early, early second century. Irenaeus, mid second century. Tertullian takes us into the uh, third century. Uh, Methodius and Lactanius are in the third century. All of these held to a premillennial view of the coming of Christ. And then he goes on to say that Origen, Origen is considered one of the great church fathers, but not great because he was orthodox. He did some great things, especially uh, he had a work that he translated called the Hexapla, which was great for textual criticism, where he had a column of the, of the Greek, uh, of the Old Testament in Hebrew and the Greek uh, the old Greek text and the uh, Septuagint text and two or three other Greek translations of the Old Testament. And there were five p- parallel Old Testament texts, as it were, so it's great for doing textual criticism work. He did some good things, but he was a great heretic because he's the one who introduced allegorical interpretation into the early church. And so Schaff notes that Origen opposed Kiliasm as a Jewish dream. See, allegory introduces anti-Semitism, and that came in, began to uh, lay its roots in the second century, and allegorical interpretation gave it a a way of interpreting and twisting the scriptures to uh, attack the Jewish people. So he says, Kiliasm is a Jewish dream. He spiritualized the symbolic language of the prophets, The apocalyptic millennium he understood to be the present reign of Christ in the Catholic Church. See, he's amillennial. He introduces that. Augustine will make it uh, absolute. He will make it the orthodox doctrine for, for, uh, for Christianity. And for a, a thousand years, the idea of a premillennial view of the return of Christ is a great heresy. That's why nobody nobody thinks about a rapture or things like that or talks about it much. There were a few, but it's, it pretty much disappears because everybody's thinking within the wrong framework. So he says the apocalyptic millennium he understood to be the present reign of Christ in the Catholic Church and the first resurrection, the translation of the martyrs and saints to heaven where they participate in Christ's reign from the time of Constantine and Augustine. Kiliasm, that is the view that we hold, took its place among the heresies. So we would have been great heretics for well over a thousand years in in the church. Now, there's three basic biblical reasons why we believe that there is a future Jewish kingdom. First of all is because the eternal covenants that God made with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the Abrahamic covenant, the land covenant, and the Davidic covenant, as well as the new covenant, have not been fulfilled. These unconditional eternal covenants that God made with Israel have yet to be fulfilled. So therefore, if God is faithful, he must fulfill those according to the letter of the covenant. So that's the first reason that we believe in a future Jewish kingdom. Second, there are specific promises related to the Messiah. There are uh, dozens of these, a hundred or more promises in the Old Testament that were not fulfilled by Jesus in the first advent. Just sit down with a rabbi someday and ask him why he doesn't believe that Jesus is a Messiah. And he'll go through prophecy after prophecy after prophecy that Jesus didn't fulfill. Until you see, if he was the Messiah, he would have fulfilled all of these prophecies. And you're going to sit there with your mouth open without an answer. 
Some of you might have one, but you really have to see, they have to understand that there's a difference between the prophecies related to a suffering Messiah and a glorified Messiah. So the prophecies related to a glorified Messiah have not been fulfilled yet, so they must be fulfilled. And then third, it's clear from the many, many passages in the Old Testament texts, in the prophets, especially of Isaiah and Jeremiah and Ezekiel, Zechariah, uh, Daniel, that the characteristic, the central characteristic of the future kingdom is that it's Jewish. It is in Israel. It, the capital is Jerusalem. The, David rules over the future kingdom in Israel as a subordinate to the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, we've seen this chart back when we were studying the covenants earlier in the series that there are promises that are made in the Old Testament and are not yet fulfilled. Some of them are partially fulfilled, but they will not come to completion until the second coming. We've looked at these in terms of the four great covenants, the Abrahamic covenant, the real estate covenant, the Davidic covenant, and the new covenant, and we've seen that they are all fulfilled only when the millennium begins. There's an application of the new covenant to today, but only because the sacrifice was laid at the cross and Christ will come and initiate that covenant at the second coming. So we've looked at the Abrahamic covenant, three basic elements, the land, seed, and blessing that are then developed in the three subsequent eternal covenants, the land covenant, the Davidic covenant, and the new covenant. And that's what we're going as we continue today to, to look at these uh, these covenants. Now, we start with Genesis 13. Genesis 13, and a lot of this is, I'm building on what we studied already in terms of the covenants. I just want to make some different points of some of these passages and pull all this together for us. In Genesis chapter 13, we have the story of, of Abraham. Those of you going to Israel, pay attention. Abraham entered the land from the north and he traveled south. First place he stopped and he built an altar to God was Shechem, or Shechem as we pronounce it in English. And then he proceeded from Shechem to uh, camp out the first night of his travels going south of Shechem at a hill between Bethel and Ai. And we'll go along a highway that goes right between that hill that will be on our left and the location of Ai on our right. And then from there he went south to Beersheba. That's where we'll go the first day that we're in Israel is to, to Beersheba. And he made his home there. In fact, Abraham ended up living most of his life there. But by Genesis 13, when he comes back from uh, his little uh, vacation in Egypt where he uh, thought he would find uh, uh uh, sucker from the famine in Israel and, and, and so doing, leaving the land and disobeying God. He comes back to the land and he moves north from Beersheba up to, uh, up towards Shechem and he stops again at Bethel and at Bethel, which is later, it's actually, isn't, doesn't have that name at this point. It's, it's, uh, named later by, uh, by Jacob. But he stops there and he goes to the altar that he had built there on his way south. And he calls upon the name of the Lord and the Lord 
uh, comes to him and says, you've got a problem with Lot, and, and you guys need to separate. And this was where Abraham had told uh, Lot, you pick wherever you want to go, and you go there, and my, me and my herdsmen will go to the other part of the land. And Lot headed down towards the beautiful green valley of the, of the Salt Sea, which isn't it probably, my guess is it wasn't the called the Salt Sea at that point. We have a lot of uh, anachronisms in Scripture, just as Bethel is not Bethel at this point. It is later called Bethel, um, and so it's still referred to earlier by the name Bethel. I think that the Salt Sea became the Salt Sea after the judgment on Sodom and Gomorrah, and so it was called that. Uh, that name was, was read back into history. So anyway, after Lot separates, the Lord said to Avram, after Lot had separated from him, lift up your eyes and look from the place where you are, north, south, east, and west, for all the land, notice, all the land which you see, I will give it to you and your your descendants forever. This has not yet happened. In fact, the only piece of land that Abraham owned was a burial spot down in the cave at Hebron where he and Sarah and later Isaac and Rebekah and then Jacob and Leah were buried. Uh, he goes, God goes on to promise, I will make your descendants as the dust of the earth, and that uh, hasn't quite happened yet. There's only about uh, 13 uh, million Jews on the face of the earth right now. That's not quite like the dust of the earth, but if you add them all up over the generations, I guess it might begin to qualify. Uh, and he says to Abram and uh, Avram in Genesis 13, 17, Arise, walk about the land through its length and breadth, for I will give it to you. That hasn't happened yet. Uh, the Palestinians, uh, so-called Palestinians, the Arabs who are living in the land still want to dispute that. So that hasn't been fulfilled yet. And then we skip a couple of chapters and we have the actual covenant cutting ceremony in Genesis 15:18, And we're told on that day the Lord made a covenant with Abram saying, To your descendants I have given this land from the river of Egypt as far as the great river of the river Euphrates. This is the first place we see the boundaries laid out. Now, what I'm getting ready to tell you is about as thrilling and exciting as reading a title deed. Okay? So, wake up. This is kind of interesting because I've read different things and different people down over the years. In fact, I got an email about three or four months ago from another pastor, a friend of mine, who sent me an email, and I had happened to read something on this before, and he said, well, what do you think the river of Egypt is? And I said, I don't think it's the Nile. I know a lot of dispensationalists think it's the Nile. You probably heard somebody teach it in the past that it was the Nile. If you go read certain books like Clarence Larkin and some others, they'll tell you it was the Nile. But there's some problems with that. And uh, uh, at the time, I decided to do a little research on it. And it's really nebulous in the commentaries. They'll say it's one or the one place or the other, and then they fudge. So it's it's really some some interesting stuff there. First of all, the word translated river of Egypt is the same word translated for the great river and the river Euphrates, and that's the word on the left side there, Nahar. Uh, Nahar is uh, means river. That's your standard word for for river. Now there's another word that comes into play here, and that's this word on the right, Nahal. The the and Nahal is a rougher guttural. That's the hate in, in Hebrew. The H, if you'll see the difference in the translation, it's a transliteration. It's a CH here and an H here. Uh, this is, really means a brook. It can mean a torrent, a brook. It's an intermittent stream or a wadi 
uh, is how that's described in, in the Middle East. And this refers, like in Numbers 34.5 and Joshua 15.4, uh, it describes the Wadi el-Arish. And I'll show you a map of that in just a minute, which is in the, about the middle of the Sinai. And so here we have our uh, map just giving, you can't read it too well here, Lagos just jumped from Lagos 5 to Lagos 6, and I got stuck this afternoon trying to find the maps, and they redid the whole thing. So I was like, I really liked it better in 5, or I haven't figured out how to use it in 6. So you have here, this. there's a faint blue line you might be able to see running down this way. That's the Wadi El Arish. And so that is the, what is, I believe is the... Uh, actual southern border of the land. And I believe that for a couple of different reasons. Now, I, when I put this map up here, I didn't, uh, let me see if I can change this just a, just a second. Yeah, I can move it over this way. All right. Put it back up. Okay. Now, you see right here, this is the eastern delta of, of, uh, of the Nile River. There's some, Arnold Fruchtenbaum takes this view, that it's not the Nile per se, it's just this eastern tributary or this eastern part of the delta. Uh, and it's not the Wadi El Arish that's located, located here. Uh, others take the view that it's the Wadi El Arish. The problem that you have in most maps, and, and granted, I, I, I think the issue here is that a lot of people aren't sure where Goshen was. Remember, Goshen was the territory that the Pharaoh set aside for the Hebrews to live. Now, most maps that I've consulted and most of the atlases that I have, that I've consulted, have put Goshen in this area where Goshen is either uh, west of that easternmost river that comes in the Nile Delta, or it straddles it. Now, if you're a Jew and you're in, in Goshen, and Goshen is to the, to the east of that tributary, and God says, I want you to leave and go to the promised land, and the borders of the promised land are from that river here, all the way up here, or if it's from the Nile all the way up there, the problem is Goshen is in the promised land. You all get that? That's just a blinding flash of the obvious. If Goshen is located here, then that means that the Nile River or any of, or, or this river to the right, which has two or three different names, uh, that river if it's either one, Goshen is to the east of it, which means everything from here, roughly, across is in the promised land. So if Goshen would already be in the promised land, so the Jews would just say, why do I have to leave to go to the promised land of there? So it can't be that far west. The Wadi El Arish has historically been uh, identified by many people in a number of passages in Scripture as... As the um, as the border of uh, the southern border of, of the promised land. Furthermore, when uh, Israel goes to Kadesh Barnea, which is located here, roughly, just or somewhere in this general area, I don't think that, that 
they're exactly sure. Here's the bottom of the Dead Sea. Yeah, it's located right right into here, right about that junction point right there is where Kadesh Barnea is located. So that's just inside the southern border of Israel. If it's the borders, the Wadi El Arish, that would make sense because from Kadesh Barnea, God told the uh, told Moses to send out the twelve tribes to recon the land. Now, why would they need to recon the land from here if they've already left all of this area, of the Sinai Peninsula, behind them as part of the land? Again, that doesn't quite make sense. Here's another map. The Red Sea that they had to cross when they were... That's a good question, Alan. Um, the Red Sea's down somewhere along in here. So people identify these different bodies of water here. Uh, there's a lot of debate as to exactly where they cross, but this area right here is the, the Sinai Peninsula, and the traditional site of Mount Sinai is down at the base of this peninsula just off the map, just off the screen. So they would have come down this way. I don't think it's the traditional site. There's a couple of other places that fit the biblical narrative better, probably in uh, the historic. The actual Sinai was probably, or Mount Sinai was probably in the middle of the peninsula, and then they would have headed up this way. So this, and, and the Wadi El Arish was historically the border between uh, Israel and, uh, and Egypt. Here's a map that's a little better. Here's the uh, Wadi El Arish right here in this area, and here's Kadesh Barnea right here, and this is where they would have sent the spies from. This area here's the Negev, here's Beersheba, here's the wilderness of Zen, and right about here at the end of the, uh, the pointer there, or probably a little further south, right about in this area, just about 15 miles from where they think Kadesh Barnea is, where we're going to spend the first night when we're in Israel. That just gives you a clue. We're going to be doing the wilderness wanderings the first two or three days. Okay, so that gives you a little bit of an idea there. Now, the point that I'm making here is that that God hasn't fulfilled those promises to the covenant. So in Leviticus 26, which is part of the five cycles of discipline, God says that he's going to eventually take them out of the land. And in verse 44, he says, When they're in the land of their enemies, I won't reject them, nor will I so abhor them as to destroy them, breaking my covenant with them. Even He's predicting, even though they disobey me, I'm not going to break my covenant with them, but I will remember them, verse 45, I will remember for them the covenant with their ancestors. So God is going to be, says again and again, he's going to be true to what he promised their ancestors. In Isaiah 27, 12, he says, it will come about in that day, he's talking about the future kingdom, that the Lord will start his threshing from the flowing stream of the Euphrates to the brook of Egypt. Now, I hadn't thought about this verse, but when we went through those eight stages of the, of the campaign of Armageddon, if you remember, Stage one was the Antichrist moves into the Middle East, sets up his staging area in the Valley of Esdralon or the Valley of Yez, also called the Valley of Yezreel, the Valley of the Mountain of Megiddo, the Valley of Har Megiddo, which is where we get the name for the the campaign of Armageddon. And I said the second stage is that Babylon is destroyed. Where is Babylon located? It's on the Euphrates River. So here we see that God predicting that he will start his threshing, the judgment that occurs at that time, from the flowing stream of the Euphrates, and then he moves west and south 
to the brook of Egypt, the Nahal of Egypt, not the river of Egypt, the only place in all of the Old Testament that you have the phrase river of Egypt is in Genesis chapter 13 um, and, and the dimensions that God is giving to, uh, to, uh, to Abraham there. That's the only place where you have the word uh, Nahar. In fact, let me go, I left something out on that slide. Nahar is the word that's used in Genesis, excuse me, I said 13, Genesis 15, 18. Nahar is the word that's used there. Nahar is never used with Egypt again in the, in the Old Testament. It's always Nahal, which refers to the brook of Egypt, the Wadi El Arish. Everywhere else that you have the Nile River mentioned, it is a Yaor. It is never called anywhere else in Scripture a Nahar. There's a distinct word used for the Nile, the Yaor. And what's interesting is that in many of these passages in Exodus, where it will translate it, the Nile, the word that's there is Yaor, and in some other passages it just translated the river, because you already know in context that it's talking about the Nile. So if that southern border of Egypt, of Israel, is supposed to be the Nile, it doesn't work because that, A, that puts Goshen over in the promised land to begin with, so why leave? And number two, the, the term that's used to describe the Nile throughout Scripture is a different word. It's Yaor, not Nahar. And most of the time you have this, the use of the word Nahal. Okay, Isaiah 27, 12 talks about the brook of Egypt. And in Ezekiel 48, 28, this is a passage talking about that, you know, that section from Isaiah 30, I mean, Ezekiel 38 and 39 talks about the uh, battle between Gog and Magog that comes at the sometime in relation to the tribulation, and you have a great uh, difference of opinion on that as to whether it's before the tribulation, in the beginning of the tribulation, the middle of the tribulation, towards the end of the tribulation, and nobody's exactly certain, although some people are more dogmatic than others, when, trust me, nobody's absolutely certain. Um, but in Ezekiel 48, 28, from Ezekiel 40 to Ezekiel 48, you have the description of the uh, millennial temple. And in Ezekiel 48, it describes the borders of Israel during the millennial kingdom. And the borders are stated in Ezekiel 48:28 by the border of Gad on the south side toward the south. The border shall be from Tamar, the waters of Meribah. Remember the waters of bitterness, uh, second time coming out of uh, near Kadesh. And along the brook to the great sea, there's that word uh, Nahal, the brook, the wadi uh, El Arish. So the boundary that's clearly stated in Ezekiel 48:28 is that that uh, brook, the wadi El Arish, that it goes across the uh, goes across the Sinai. Isaiah 30:23. Uh, to 26, all describes the wonderful nature of the, the, the fecundity, the productivity of the land of Israel. God will give them rain for the seed which they sow in the ground, no famines, no drought. Uh, they, uh, they, it will, the yield will be rich and plenteous, verse 23. 24 says the oxen, donkeys will work the ground. Uh, will eat salted fodder, which has been winnowed with shovel and fork. And all the description that goes on in Isaiah 30 there just talks about how 
wonderful the environment will be during the time of the kingdom. Later on in Isaiah, talks about how they will build cities, houses, inhabit them, plant vineyards, eat their fruit. Uh, they shall not build their house and have somebody take it away from them, somebody else inhabit it. Uh, verse 23, they won't labor in vain or bear children for calamity. Uh, they will uh, have great productivity and peace in the land. Jeremiah 31 says, at that time God says, I will be the God of all the families of Israel and they shall be my people. This is talking about that restoration uh, in the land. He will be true to his promises. He says in verse 4, again, I will build you and you shall be rebuilt. So he's going to rebuild the nation. That has not yet happened yet. All of this shows us that there's yet a future kingdom. Ezekiel 20:42 says, You will know that I am the Lord when I bring you into the land of Israel, into the land which I swore to give to your forefathers. This hasn't been fulfilled yet. He said that to Ezekiel, who is, an, uh, who is outside of the land. He is in Babylon when he is writing as a writing prophet. He is not in the land. And yet God is promising restoration. This hasn't taken place yet. In fact, I'm always looking for something uh, a little more precise than I think I've even gotten at this point. I was reading one source this last week that said that only about 20% of the Jews in the world in the first century had returned to the land of Israel. I've seen as high as maybe 35%. But today we have, I think it's close to 49% of all the Jews in the world live in the land of Israel. More Jews live in Israel than live anywhere else in the world. And that is the highest percentage of Jews living in the land since 586 B.C. or 722. We could take it all the way back to 722 because you had the Assyrian dispersion. So that just tells us this is something unique and distinct today that, that yes, indeed, the nation has been rebuilt, and this is significant. Never since uh, the, since before the destruction of the northern kingdom have, have such a high percentage of Jews lived in the land. Of course, at that point, it was close to 100%. Now, the second covenant is the land covenant. And in the land covenant, uh, we see the promise of a regathering to, uh, of Israel to the land that God promised to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And this is grounded in the land covenant, which is articulated in Deuteronomy 29.1. Now, we believe that I, that Deuteronomy 29.1 is talking about a distinct covenant. There are many today you might read or hear about who just think this is a re-articulation of the land promise. It's not a distinct covenant. But it clearly says, these are the words of the covenant which the Lord commanded Moses to make with the sons of Israel in the land of Moab. The land of Moab, uh, for those going to Israel, we've got about six here, I think, who are going to Israel or five or so. Um, when we cross over into Petra, after we leave Petra and we head north, we will drive about three and a half hours north of Petra. Some of you have been there with me before, and we went to Mount Nebo. Mount Nebo, as you're looking kind of to the north and, and east, is overlooking the plains of Moab right there near where Joshua crossed over the Jordan. We'll cross close to that point at the General Allenby Bridge. Uh, this is where Moses gives the, his sermon of Deuteronomy, and then he went up on Mount Nebo, 
and he died. So he makes this uh, reiteration or makes this new covenant a distinct covenant from the one God had made with them at Horeb. And I believe that means this is a different promise related to the land. And what this covenant promises is that they will turn away from the Lord in Deuteronomy 29, 24 to 28. God will then disperse them from the land as judgment for their disobedience in Deuteronomy 29, which is covered in De- 29, uh, 2 through 29. And then God promises in Deuteronomy 31 through 10 that he will restore them. He will return them to the land. So that hasn't been fulfilled yet. So that has to be fulfilled in the future. That's what takes place at the beginning of the millennial kingdom. So this covenant promises that they will uh, uh, turn away from the Lord and that they will uh, be dispersed out of the land and eventually they will come back. This is this second regathering is confirmed numerous times by the prophets. A key passage is Isaiah eleven eleven, and we talked about this before, but I'll remind you where God says and that at and I believe it's that that regathering to establish the kingdom. He says, "I will regather you from all the nations where I have scattered you, not some of them, not one of them." but all of them a second time. So if that regathering that occurs at the end of the tribulation, beginning of the millennial kingdom, is the second regathering from all the nations where I've gathered you, when was the first regathering? Was that when they came back from Babylon? No, wait a minute. They just came back from Babylon. Remember, I just said, even at the time of Christ, at the most, only a third of all the Jews in the world had returned to the land. So you still had a probably 25, 30% at most uh, living in the land. So that wasn't a gathering. They didn't come from all the nations. They just primarily came back from Babylon. There were a few that dribbled in from, from Egypt and from uh, uh, Turkey, Bithynia, Pontus, Cappadocia, those areas. But most of them uh, had come back from, from Babylon in the return under uh, Zerubbabel and Ezra and Nehemiah. So when, when else did they come back? Well, there really weren't any until the first Aliyah that started in the 18, about 1881 uh, after the assassination of, I always get these guys confused, I think it was uh, Tsar Alexander II, and it was blamed on uh, it was blamed on the Jews because there was one Jewish woman in the group of conspirators. So they blamed the whole thing on the Jews, and he was succeeded by uh, an, a virulent anti-Semite who sought to kill, blame the Jews and kill all the Jews, and so a lot of Jews started returning to, to Israel. That's the first Aliyah. There was a second Aliyah in the late um, in the late 1890s, and then a third Aliyah in the early part of the 1900s, and so on. And so that just was a groundswell until now you have that over the last um, 130 years, you've seen uh, almost half of the Jews in the world return to the land. That's significant, I think. So uh, that's the first return. They're still returning. In fact, if you read the papers, you'll see because of the increased Arabic anti-Semitism and European anti-Semitism in France, 
in, in I think Sweden was declared Judenfrei, which is a horrid term, meaning Jew-free. Uh, Sweden was declared Judenfrei a couple of years ago that more and more Jews, there's a wave of Jews leaving France and heading back to the land right now. So it, it's a constant uh, pouring of Jews into uh, into Israel. So this is the first gathering. I believe it's a gathering of unbelief prior to the tribulation. And then the regathering will be from all over the world, which it hasn't been prior. So they're coming from everywhere. They're coming from Australia. They're coming from China and India and all over uh, Iraq and Iran and uh, all through North Africa, all over Europe, South America, Mexico, the United States. They're coming from all over to return to the land. But it's a time now in unbelief. Again, we see uh, that we've already quoted Isaiah 27. Isaiah 43, 5, God said, Don't fear, for I am with you. I will bring your offspring from the east and gather you from the west. I will say to the north, Give them up. To the south, do not hold them back. Everyone who is called by my name, after whom I have created for my glory, whom I have formed, even whom I have made. So this tells us this is going to be this massive regathering. Jeremiah 16 uh, talks about, God says, Behold, days are coming when it will no longer be said as the Lord lives who brought up the sons of Israel out of the land of Egypt, as the Lord lives who brought the sons of Israel from the land of the north and from all the ca- uh, countries where he had banished them. So it's no longer going to refer back to the Exodus and the return then, but to this return. By the way, the other day I went to see a, a movie and they showed the previews to Exodus, Gods and Kings. So this is a fun thing for you to do between now and Christmas. It's going to open up on Christmas Day. Is between now and Christmas, read through the book of Exodus, probably just the first 20 chapters, and read it through about 10 times. Make notes, write down the order of events, and then uh, go with your whole family. Make it a family day. Go see Exodus, Gods, and Kings, and see who in your family can come up with the most contradictions with the Bible. That'll teach you to look at the film, uh, not only enjoy it for all of its special effects and everything, it looks like it's going to be tremendous, but there there will inevitably be the contradictions with Scripture. And so you can uh, make a little game of it and see how many you can pick out. Jeremiah 23, Then I shall gather the remnant of my flock out of all the countries which I've driven them. I'll raise up shepherds over them. We talked about that in our passage uh, just the other day in, in Matthew, that they are right now without those spiritual leaders. So this is an important passage. Jeremiah 23, 5, that Behold, the days are coming, says the Lord, that I will raise to David a branch of righteousness. So this is talking about, the, in a messianic pro- prophecy, a king who will reign and prosper, and he will be called the Lord our righteousness. And so all these passages, Jeremiah 23, going on into Ezekiel 11, talking about the fact that the land is going to be given to Israel. So all of this section emphasizes that not only is God going to um, fulfill his promises to Abraham, but he's going to fulfill his promise specifically in terms of the, um, of the land. Amos 9, 14, and 15, also I will restore the captivity of my people Israel, and they will rebuild the ruined cities and live in them, They will also plant vineyards and drink their wine and make gardens and eat their fruit. 
and I will plant them on their land, and they will not again be rooted out from the land which I have given them. So God fulfills his covenant promises. So if we take anything away from all of this in terms of an application for us, it's the faithfulness of God that when he makes a promise, he keeps it. And no matter what the circumstances may be, God is always going to be true to his word. Now, the last part of this that we'll look at, but we'll look at it after I return from Israel, is going to be the reestablishment of the throne of David. And then we'll work through that last part and the millennial kingdom. I thought we might finish the dispensation series before I went to Israel, but we will finish it up uh, probably in the early part of December before we move on into some other areas. Uh, we'll finish Romans very soon, maybe this week, maybe after I get back. But then the next, um, the next two books we're going to study are going to be First, First and Second Samuel which is just a tremendous book. It's a continuation of Judges. If you haven't listened to the old Judges series I taught in Preston, which is just an audio, you really need to listen to that. It's a continuation. No books are more germane to what's going on in our country today than, than those books in the Old Testament. They really address what it's like to live in a paganized culture. And they remind us of the grace of God and that he's the only one who has a solution. Because we're not as screwed up as Israel was in the period of the judges. And the period of the judges extends all the way up through the first seven or eight chapters in the book of 1 Samuel. And so God, by the end of 1 Samuel, you have David on the throne. And things are, are tremendous. So things can turn around by the grace of God. So we need to keep that in mind. But we're going to do 1 Samuel and also 1 Peter. So we will be do, doing some firsts uh, when, when I get back. Uh, Jeff, why don't you come on up here while I'm closing in prayer? Father, thank you for this time that we've had to study these things, to be reminded of your faithfulness, to be reminded of what you were doing with Israel, that what we see today, uh, while it may be argued whether or not it's fulfillment of prophecy or not, it's clearly setting the stage for the fulfillment of prophecy and the events that will take place following the uh, rapture, following the tribulation. And, Father, we pray that this would give us great pause to think about the fact that, that at any moment the Lord Jesus Christ could come back for us. Nothing needs to be happened for that to take place, but you could return, but the Lord can return for us at any moment. We need to be ready. We need to anticipate the fact that we are looking forward and preparing for our future time to rule and reign with him when he comes to establish that kingdom. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen.